This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. And today we'll be talking to Carrie and Kelsey Matwick about their new book, Food Discourse of Celebrity Chefs of Food Network, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2019. Carrie and Kelsey Matwick are identical twin sisters and linguists who are passionate about language, food, and culture. Kelsey is a lecturer at University of Florida, and Carrie is a lecturer at Nanyang Technological University. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. It is a pleasure to be speaking to you about this project. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie, very much. We're pleased to be here. Yeah, it's been fun to hear you call each other sis while you're setting up. It's very cute. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, let's start out by getting you to tell us a little bit about your academic and professional backgrounds. How did you get interested in writing about food, especially food, TV, and media? Kelsey, let's start with you. Yeah, well, grilled chicken, lasagna, peanut butter pancakes, we grew up with these. And reading cookbooks while our mom was preparing the pancake batter. And we just really got interested in in learning about food. And we grew up with the Food Washing Food Network and um, just wanted to keep exploring more our interests on the professional level. Yeah, what are your degrees in, Kelsey? Um, I, both of us, we have similar, um, edu- or, um, I have a degree in, um, master's in Spanish and linguistics and then a PhD in linguistics. And so we were interested, yeah, while watching TV, then we started to pay attention to more about how the celebrity chefs were talking to us. It was more than like, oh, well, you know, why are they going into the story about how, why their mom cooked you know, like custard macaroni cheese, why, why aren't they just giving us the recipe? You know, so we started to wonder why is this doing it? and then how is it doing? And that's what linguistics does. We like to look at how are things are being said. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's kind of the same thing that led me to an interest in cookbooks as well, to see that there are all these things around a recipe that are not the recipe itself. What are they there for? 
right? And what are they doing? That's great. Uh, so why the Food Network? Give us a, a broad overview of the Food Network as it exists now, um, the types of celebrity cooking shows that you were interested in for this study. Uh, Kelsey, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, the Food Network was the first American television channel devoted um, solely to food and entertaining, and it's grown predominantly um it's expanded the genres from how-to cooking shows to competition, uh, reality, talk shows, travel. Um, and it's exploded uh, the Food Network globally. There are forms of Food Network in Europe and Asia. And um, it's um, the most international uh, Food Network. And the Food Network is, is particularly interesting because it's one of the very first food-only 24/7 network. So that was when they're one of they're recognized as being one of the pioneering in one of like the cable niches, like where there's channels devoted to particular um, types of shows. So for right now, you know there are DIY shows and HGTV. So similar, so Food Network was one of the ones during that rise in the early 2000s. Well, what are the specific lenses that you bring to food studies from your background in linguistics and communication? Um, I talk to a lot of people on this podcast who are literature and food studies or history and food studies or, uh, you know, science and food studies, health sciences. So what is it that's going to be unique and different about the study of a discourse and language of food as opposed to the food itself? Uh, Kelsey, why don't you start there? Uh, we study um, through the sociolinguistic aspect. Um, uh, we analyze the discourse talking about the language of food um, and what is said about it. How do um, the celebrity chefs talk about it? What are the transitions from telling a story to telling a recipe? Um, to what's the difference between inter- the host interacts with guests at or versus to the audience or the viewers? All the language. Um, about and around food. Yeah, Carrie, what do you think is special about it? Yeah, so what's special too about linguistics is we take more into account than just the written word. Say, like, literature is basically just the written word. And this gets into the multimodality that linguistics looks into, where it's not just written, but also spoken and then visual and gestures. And that's what TV in particular is unique genre and that does have all these multiple modes is what it's called each mode is a type of language feature way we communicate with one another and tv has all these different elements so um, that too makes it particularly rich in data and how we communicate and especially like with it aspects of that can become part of the recipe telling itself like when there's um so the, the chef is cooking and she'll say it should get as brown as this. And so then the camera zooms in. And so we see the color, you know, but she doesn't actually tell us what that color is. What does caramelization look like? She says, this is what it looks like. You know, and then as viewers, the television sees that and we're like, oh, okay, that's what we see. Well, literature would not, would not be able to, that, and that's just an example, would not be able to capture that visual aspect and spoken aspect that goes along with um, 
with with written text. Yeah, one of the things that uh, came up in my last conversation on the podcast was um, how texts can stand still and you can look at them in a lot of different angles. Uh, And I'm interested in the way that you're like by looking at TV, you are looking at something that can be repeatable. It can stand still, but it's also very dynamic, lots of movement, lots of layers that maybe we can't capture by looking at the real world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the beauties, too, is like when the the chef will pull out a dish that's already been done. We don't have to wait for it to cook 45 (laughs) minutes. You know, it's like, oh, there it is. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, uh, talk about food discourse. You've already, I think, hinted to that a little bit, Carrie, about what what all is involved in food discourse. Uh, But Kelsey, can you give us a good definition of what what you're including when you talk about food discourse? Sure. We, we define food discourse as the written, spoken, and visual text about food on topics such as um, food preparation, presentation, consumption, all which expresses the individual and the collective sociocultural values about. So where we bring these concepts together through um, food discourse. Um, and, and so that... Um, so it's, yeah, it's the idea of where everything that when we talk about food, like every aspect, whether one uh, takes on and what centers everything is food. Food is the main theme. So whether it's spoken or visual or through gestures or through sound, um, any aspect about that that's surrounding about food, either whether we're talking about it or we're actually making it or eating it or we're writing about it, all those aspects are we've, we put under the umbrella of food discourse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, not the food itself. It almost doesn't matter what they're making as long as they're talking and moving. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Carrie, you've also kind of started by explaining multimodality, but tell us a little bit more about that. What else uh, is included besides what's just spoken and transcribed? What are you looking for? Yeah. Well, part of this is based off of some theory by Cress and Van Leeuwen. They're, well-known linguists who've studied, yeah, these different modes. And so it's the idea that spoken language is not given priority, but also different forms of communication. So um, so what we're looking for is how these come together on the television show in a unique way. Like since cooking is about making something, so we're seeing how these modes come together to transform something, and in this case, ingredients, mm-hmm. and how these different aspects come together and are realized on TV for both during the production and then um, all the editing that goes on behind it as well. Yeah, I think that was clear to me in the the passages where you've you're sort of represented the text, uh, and it includes what they say, what the a gesture, how the camera has moved. Uh, all of those things are really interesting, and I think I can see um, a little bit of what you talked about before of like they sh- they say this and they don't they gesture to, right? Um, And so we need all of those things to really be able to understand what's going on. Well, I think I love a process question and uh, I especially love a research process that includes watching television. Uh, So tell me a little bit about that, the methodology of your watching. Uh, How much did you watch? How did you, I I guess, read the archive? How did you sort through it and code it? Um, Carrie, why don't you start? Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, well, our research gathering really, you know, been it's been going on for years. 
I, you know, going back to when we've been watching it all the time for, so it's hard to actually separate how much we watch for this show, you know, our book in itself, because it's based off of all of our years of research. And so we're very familiar with the data and the channel all throughout. And so we sorted it by looking at the genres in particular first, like, okay, what do competition cooking shows look like? And then what do how-to ones, what kind of talks going on there? And then how does the talk show, the kitchen, what kind of talk goes on there? So we kind of, that's how we started to sort through it. And then we, by picking which shows, we picked the ones that were most exemplary of that genre. And then within that, we looked at the particular shows, you know, it was kind of like a big funneling effect, basically. Mm-hmm. And then did you take transcriptions, Kelsey? How did we kind of get to a document that you can read and code? Right. We uh, transcribed um, certain scenes that we were analyzing. And our format um, where it's readable in our book of food discourse. So we're, um, but it, where we capture the the important gestures that are part of the spoken, such as when the, the host smiles, we add right. that. Um, we add more to the, what is said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smiling, eye rolling. Um, I'm, ex- I'm interested in the way you describe uh, the evaluations as well. We'll get there in a minute, but uh, that's great. Did you, uh, do you have a TV watching snack? Side question, <laughs> surprise question. What, what do we eat while we watch TV? Ice cream. Yes, ice cream's delicious. And then <laughs> also oatmeal. Oatmeal's another one. So the what? two kind of, yeah, hot, <laughs> hot and cold, creamy, creamy version. You know, it takes like a long time to eat, you know, one of those kind of. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anyone answer oatmeal for TV watching food. That's great. Kelsey, make, Kelsey makes really good oatmeal. So when I miss Ooh. her, when I miss her, I make it. And so I, ma- I, I make it all the time. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. <laughs> all right. Well, because of my own interest in authenticity, uh, especially authority and ethos, I was really interested in the paradox of the celebrity and authenticity that you introduced early in the book. Um, you write the personas of television chefs are often perceived as celebrities who are removed from everyday life and unattainable, Mm -hmm. but simultaneously marketed in the media as relatable and real. Uh, So can you give some examples of how chefs navigate those opposing forces of being unattainable and totally real? Uh, Carrie, why don't you go first? Yeah, well, a celebrity chef who immediately comes into mind who does an excellent job of that is Reed Drummond, Reed Drummond of the Pioneer Woman. She really, just part of her brand is being, you know, natural. And so the way we, she does it is the filming is on at her home, at her ranch out in, um, in Oklahoma. And we get to see that and her family's evolved, especially with the pandemic, her family was filming it. And so it was very, yeah, it was very at home production. And it's been so popular. She's continued to do that. Like her daughter and um, both of her daughters and then her sons uh, and son-in-law now are involved with the. So anyway, so those are ways that by including family members or we get to see aspects of them driving down the road or we really feel like, oh, we know this gal. 
But, you know, of course, she's unattainable because she's she is Reed Drummond. She can cook like this. She can have such ease in hosting. And so. Yeah. And not very many of us can live on a ranch in Oklahoma. Only a few of us get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and do yeah. it so well. Yeah. Yeah. Kelsey, how about you? Some other examples of, of chefs negotiating that. Right. Um, another example is Rachel Ray. Uh, she was one of the first celebrity chefs on the Food Network. And, um, she conveys herself as being the girl next door. And so often she weaves in stories of her cooking mistakes, such as um, she um, is notorious for burning toast. And she you know, sets the fire, fire alarm off and then... Um, Go throughout, and so that shows that she's just like us. She also makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I always love how she takes all the ingredients out of the refrigerator at once, and then has to like waddle across the kitchen with these arms full of <laughs> things. She's just like us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of yeah, and that shows too how she like time efficient she wants to be. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you divide the analysis into four types of discourse, uh, recipe telling, storytelling, evaluations, and humor. Um, excuse me. And all of these, you argue, are aimed at marking the celebrity chef as authentic and expert. Uh, so how did you come to these four categories of recipe telling, storytelling, evaluations, and humor? Carrie? Well, part of that is kind of how you were mentioning about how do we go through our data. Well, we started to notice, well, what are what are the main language features that are emerging? Well, and recipe telling, obviously, because it is a cooking show. And then storytelling was another big aspect. And then and then evaluations and humor came when the with the rise of competition shows. We started to realize, oh, well, you know, on Chopped and a MasterChef, all of these ones where there is a judging panel that's pure you know that's where evaluations is really strong because they're telling they're saying how well it tastes and then humor comes in through our analysis of guy fieri and his especially his humor on the travel show you know diner charvins at ice and we just noticed he's so was so good at that so we started to look at that humor as another language feature as well Great. Uh, you define recipe telling as the language used to describe the cooking procedure. That's pretty good. Uh, naming the ingredients, describing the procedures as the host performs them. How is this language act different from writing or reading a recipe? Uh, what's unique about recipe telling, Kelsey? For sure. Well, with recipe telling, um, it, it follows the narrative structure of LaBeouf. William LaBeouf is a, one of the original linguists who study narrative and where um, so recipes as a story have six parts um, there's an abstract uh, and then orientation complicating actions resolution coda and evaluations so the host tells the recipe following these parts we say for example orientation theme last night I was baking banana bread uh, it was 5 o'clock in the morning, you know, or, or 5 p.m. at night. And then the abstract is then the, the brief, um, what's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to make batter tonight. And then the complicating action then starts telling how to um, make the recipe. I'm going to add 
uh, a half cup of sugar, and then, um, and so it continues following the format of its narrative. And throughout a recipe telling is different where um, it also involves some of the action. We can see the host adding adding in the ingredients, measuring out, uh, and then all throughout also weaving in stories of her own thing. Uh, oh, you know, my mother gave me the secret to add cinnamon, you know, or that's how recipe telling different versions of writing. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see how the recipe telling has all these other opportunities for digression, right? Whereas a, a written recipe needs to kind of stand still and do its one thing. Um, I was interested in how the process of recipe telling created all these opportunities for more storytelling. Uh, so Carrie, I'm going to ask you about that. <laughs> Talk a little bit about those storytelling layers, the super story of the series, the story arc of the episode, the recipe, the, you know, all those things. Walk us through some of that. Yeah, absolutely. So each show we like to see as a, a big story because there's the one host that we, we expect to see every week. And then, um, but then in each, ser- each seri- it's, uh, series itself, there's a story where there's, and that's usually based off of a theme, say, um, recipes in 60 minutes or and then within those 60 minutes that's all the same thing and then each recipe itself has its own story just like the progression Kelsey was saying that how you know, going from the ingredients itself to its transformed nature so all these little stories then make up that one episode of, of this particular theme and then the story can also be more drawn out like say if it's a uh, um, a competition show where it's based off of, okay, we're at this week, round one, and then elimination, you know, there are 10 guests. Now we're down to eight participants. And so that can be a, like a little bit broader of a story arc. Mm-hmm. And what purpose do those little storytelling moments serve? I'm thinking especially of the ones that are kind of interrupting or digressing. Say a little bit more about those kind. Yeah, we'll help contextualize the recipe. It adds extra meaning to it, you know, because honestly, we could probably, you know, you just Google nachos and there are a ton of nacho recipes. So why are we still watching another recipe on nachos? Well, it's because we want to hear about how, say, Rachel Ray came up with nachos and it was when she was making them, you know, um, say, for a tailgating party with her husband, John, and, you know, and so we're interested in that part. So when we make it ourselves, we're kind of taking her story with us and then uh, re- reliving it, basically. So it's kind of a way that we get to experience, in a sense, what a celebrity chef is like by cooking exactly what they made. So in a sense, we're vicariously reliving that experience that they had. Yeah, I was interested in, at some point, um, and I can't remember where, <laughs> you were talking about excuse me, making the recipe retellable or making it reportable that when you have that storytelling or you have that other text around the recipe, it becomes something that you can take with you. Yeah. You wrote something else in this chapter that really resonated with me. And that's uh, kind of pointing out the predictable formula of the cooking show. It gets pretty formulaic. um, And I think there's a cultural bias against things that are formula, but not me. I like it. (laughs) I like formulas. I like um, Hallmark holiday movies that are all exactly the same. Uh, 
because of the thing that you say, which is that it creates this place where you can identify variation and creativity really easily by playing with that formula. Uh, so maybe I'll ask you, what kind of creative variations can you point to within the formulaic genre of the cooking shows? Is there anything that stands out as a, a really interesting variation? Uh, Kelsey, I'll start with you. Uh, sure. Well, um, one variation that's interesting is at the end, sometimes hosts like to include bloopers. Uh, even though the show has ended, they'll add the parts where they make a mistake or um, they'll show the, the screen cut and uh, to show that the show has ended, but then, um, you know, they're practicing and so it the host invites the viewer into more intimate level, this backstage, uh, and that's even more supports this um, display of authenticity where um, we see him acting more naturally off script. Uh, um, that's one creative variation. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Carrie, what about you? That it could be also um, the variation occurs by the different hosts themselves, the type of how how to cooking shows. That's kind of part of these. They're always about like, well, what 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 do you bring? What's your story? What's your uh, you know, like say the guy Fieri just had a show where he was trying to train like the next drivers, divers, and the dives guide. It was basically what's your culinary point of view is basically that. So that's what their that variation and creativity is what they're looking for. So how what makes the same formula different is basically the person. And so how, what how does that point of view uh, based off of that person is it unique enough to create a following? Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the next chapter on evaluations uh, also resonated with something that I've often thought about, and that's that this is the part of the show that teaches us as watchers how to talk about food, right? So when we turn off the show, we've learned something, right, that we can become the kinds of tasters that they are. Uh, and I absolutely credit Top Chef uh, for teaching me uh, almost everything that I know about a language for tasting and judging my food. Um, so what are evaluations, first of all, uh, and what role do they play in making the host into an expert, Kelsey? Well, evaluations are the judgment about the food. How does it taste? Um, you know, is it fresh? Is it burnt? Is it, um, so then the, the host or the judge, then it has to explain their decision or 
their their evaluation say of the dish and then how they um, support that builds their their expertise um, and often the, the judge's evaluation also addresses not only the food but also how the chef sells perform during cooking that they cook um create or um were they able to juggle the pressure uh, of being filmed and then also how they describe the dish itself? Yeah, Carrie, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, because part of the what's what we find as being tasty is also very culturally based. Because being here in Singapore, I've realized, so for instance, with Westerners, we like crispy chicken and crunchy but here in Singapore, chicken rice is very popular, and the the skin on the chicken is just poached, so it's very soft. And here they see it as you know delicate. Well, for Americans, we would probably say it's flabby. It's you know <laughs> chew is too chewy. You know, well we would prefer more yeah the crispy, the crunchy. Like that's a very um, so even just like that, how we describe this particular dish from a Singaporean would be much different than an American one. I mean, both are, of course, succulent dishes, but just um, the textures we learn to expect are very culturally based. Yeah. Did, in your watching, did anyone have just great evaluations? Is anyone really good at it that you noted? Yeah, for sure. Alex Mm -hmm. Garnaschelli was very... Yes. Her vocabulary is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What show is she on? She's on Chopped. She's a judge on Chopped a lot. Um, and sometimes she guests on Guy's Grocery Games one. But mainly Chopped, you can really tell her skill in that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and humor shows up throughout the book, but you have a whole chapter dedicated to thinking about humor and play in cooking shows. Um, and so you come at play from a very specific point of view. Uh, so what is play in the sense that you're using it and what kinds of humor are typical on these cooking shows? Sure. Well, play, play we infer as more as they're having fun. Um, so say, for example, uh, Reed Drummond of the Pioneer Woman say she's sautéing corn, and then the corn um, you know, pops out of the cast iron skillet, and so Reed will say, or where the corn interjects and goes pop, and so Reed would laugh and say, oh, popcorn, we had a little escaping. So calling the, the popcorn you know, by the little escaping, and we as connotations all that makes the food more endearing, more fun, relatable. Uh, so we see play as, as that, as having kind of fun, you know, enjoying part of the I loved the list of personifications for food, right? That little guy, <laughs> the little tomato being cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Carrie, any other kinds of humor that you think are, are interesting here? Um, well, again, back to Guy Fieri, he has a lot of jokes that, and that that's a skill because he's interacting with someone else. So getting that other person to um, kind of respond and then it's a lot of it spontaneous. He's particularly well about putting someone at ease and humor is a way to do that. So we're not only does a person feel 
And when you start to laugh, you're like, oh, okay, I, I, this guy is normal. He's fun. He likes me. I like him. So humor is a way for not only the celebrities have to relate to whoever's on the stage, but then also with the viewer. The viewer also wants to laugh along. I thought it was a pretty genius move to end the book with the next Food Network star. Um, it's an interesting show. <laughs> uh, and you, you think about it in some really interesting ways. So how does the network reproduce this discourse through the way it mentors and trains its potential stars? Uh, you write that this is the way that the network can grow their own celebrities and control how they're marketed before, during, and after production. Um, so, Carrie, what are chefs and viewers being told is the right or the best way to be a host? Well, for sure, it's definitely being skilled at both cooking and at storytelling, where now it's definitely not enough just to know how to cook, but also to be able to perform in front of the camera. So being performing in front of the camera, a lot of the talk was being natural, you know, don't talking too fast, you know, don't be nervous, make sure you smile, you know, all these kind of little mandates are what they, the Food Network uh, described as being a celebrity chef. And so we kind of saw within the, that mix of being so authentic. So as being, you know, smiling, natural, your natural speed, and then also being the celebrity aspect, which is being skilled, what makes you different than what a normal person off the street is. Yeah. I think the impulse to look at this uh, show is the same one that I use when I look at how um, cookbook handbook writers, people who write like the handbook for how to write a cookbook, when something is super formulaic, you want to know where does the formula come from? Who invented the formula? Um, so it sounds like this show is really doing a lot of that work. Uh, so you identify those four criteria for a successful celebrity chef performance to be natural, as you said, focused, adaptable, and experts. Um, where do these come from and what do they look like in action? Who decided that this is <laughs> what we needed? Yeah, well, for that, we looked at what the, the celebrity chef, the judges, and those, like the guests that are on the show are, say, former, the, the celebrity chefs themselves, so Bobby, Bobby Flay and Giada De Laurentiis, kind of the coaches that were selected to to coach these contestants. And then also the producers would come on and at the end, let's say Bob Tushman. And in particular, we looked at what he would be saying about that. And then each round, there would be a certain aspect being featured. So adaptable is like they would throw a curveball, like, okay, so now for this, you only have this, say, $10 or per dish that you can sell to this crowd at Miami Beach. So being set constraints kind of were a way to challenge, like make a level playing field across the different contestants, but also challenge to see how does this person um, react to changes to, you know, things that aren't necessarily the, at the, at the same as being at home, like what they're used to or they're, they're a professional chef, whatever background they're coming from. Cool. Uh, in a section called The Performance of Being Yourself, uh, you talk about another paradox of authenticity, which is how carefully the contestants have to craft their performance in order to appear natural or organic. Uh, so, Kelsey, how does this play out in the show? How do we see people working on being natural? <laughs> sure. Well, um, where the, the contestants have to be natural in the sense of and being consistent with who they are, who they present themselves. Um, for example, one contestant was 
um, from Cuba. And so uh, his cooking style involved then more those type of ingredients. So for him to then experiment with Asian sauces all of a sudden, yeah, it kind of goes beyond his natural or beef or good or, or organic self. And so he has to be, um, you know, who be show a consistent um, identity. Yeah, and I'm going to, that makes me think of, Ooh, pause. That was some feedback. Uh, okay, I'll edit that out. <laughs> um, that makes me think of how, uh, how how characters on TV can kind of get boxed into some uh, identities. I remember at the beginning of Dale Talday's uh, cookbook, Asian American, that he writes about being on Top Chef and, uh, you know, cooking the food that he normally cooked and suddenly being the Asian guy. And so he now has to kind of fill that role, whether it's what he wanted to or not. Um, so from the show, do you see any ways that this is maybe creating limits or does it seem to be opening up possibilities for people? Can you think of any examples, maybe? Well, um, yeah, because it's all part of like stereotypes and expectations. Because we all, as viewers, we we expect that about a brand. So that gets into the person becoming a brand and how willing are they to accept that brand. And I think if it comes so naturally, it sh there shouldn't be resistance. Like say, like for example, Pioneer Woman, she just seems that is how she lives. So. Um, but I think if a person doesn't like, if they want to experiment with other types of cooking, you know, I think, um, I think that's fine, you know, I, but they just need to uh, somehow say like, it's, it's not part of their brand or say like, look, I am not just Asian American. I want to be this other person too. So I think, but it's just kind of, it, it, it's asking a lot of the viewer to, believe in different versions of the same of a brand right so it's about the argument right how convincing can they make the argument that they're still going to be natural just not the way you expected right yeah yeah exactly. yeah well what's next for the food network are there any hosts out there who are playing with the genre in interesting ways that we should pay attention to uh, do you think that the Food Network is going to last forever and ever <laughs> or, you know, are its days numbered? Uh, Carrie, what do you think? Well, I don't think that its days are numbered because it's, um, you know, you could say that it's competing against YouTube and Netflix. And but at the same time, Food Network has its own type of shows, you know, that it is still doing the traditional how to and that we know when we turn it on, there's going to be some cooking show. Well, and it's all been, um, you know, in a sense, edited. It's all been kind of screened. While on YouTube, we're still having to pick out ourselves who it is. It's kind of like everything's already curated there for us. And then we start to like that style. So it's kind of like a store, basically a store of all these. These are the, you know, the hosts I like. And so I know when I turn it on, I'll like whatever's on there because I like that that store. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. How about any standout hosts, Carrie? Anybody we should be looking to? 
Well, um, with the latest, you know, discussion about bringing more diversity on shows, there's definitely been a more appearance of African Americans and Asian Americans on the food on yeah the Food Network, and so I think we'll be starting to see a lot more international food being uh, explored, as well as different types of American food and types of, you know. it's showing how rich and multicultural our American United States is. And I think that's going to be represented a little bit better in the Food Network. Yeah. Kelsey, what do you think's next? I agree in terms of um, it's not only being more um, variety and uh, of hosts, you know, it's increasing more the, the viewers, the audience will, uh, will you know, be with different shows, then more viewers would be interested. Yeah, the, thinking about the a particular show in itself is called, you know, so Chopped. Chopped has a competition show, which is just uh, so many episodes. And so the latest version of that, talking back about creativity and, and variation, there's a the next gen, the next generation. So the millennials. So I, I see that the Food Network now is trying to really target the the millennials by featuring millennials on the shows themselves. And so that kind of discourse is more about, we want you to be creative. You know, you got to be cutting edge, pushing the boundaries, risk taking. So different values are being promoted to, uh, and are, are appealing to the millennial generation. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and then I noticed you in the book, you were talking about some kids programming as well. So now it's kind of like for the whole family, there's something to watch. <laughs> well, just because I'm curious, uh, how do you research and write as a team? Um, I've never quite collaborated with anyone as closely as my identical twin, uh, which I don't have. But, <laughs> but tell me a little bit about how you research and write together. Kelsey, why don't you start? Yeah, well, we always love watching the shows together and reading the cookbooks. So we'll just talk about it on our daily coming and going. Um, so then we'll write notes down, see in the car when we get ideas, and then we just start kind of forming, you know, a draft of a paper and start adding on things, start um, researching, basically. Yeah, and we'll we'll share at the um we'll we'll share like the same OneDrive doc, and then we can see each other both writing on it. So we know like okay, I can see Kelsey typing at the paragraph above me. So I know okay, well I'll just I'll work on the paragraph below her. So you know, (laughs) and so seeing each other writing at the same time is very motivating. It's it's a lot easier. Yeah. And then when I see Kelsey come up with the idea, I say, oh, brilliant. Well, then I've, I've got this idea too that we can say. And then, so same as like that, it's very, um, it's great working with Kelsey. Oh, that's great. So, you, <laughs> so you're not doing, you're really like working within the same document rather than like splitting up the task. Right. Yeah. Wow. Right. Because the same document, then it helps avoid repeating or, going off on a different idea. Yeah. And sometimes we will, so since it is a, a document on the one, the cloud, sometimes we'll all download copies to save. So, cause then sometimes I'll be like, Oh, Kellis, why did you delete my paragraph? And then, or like, Kellis, 
<laughs> or something like that, or Kelsey will more likely Kelsey will ask me that. Where did my paragraph go? And then I'll say, okay, well, here, here, here it is. I'll put it back on. And then I'll say, well, I, I, I changed it because of this. And, you know, then we'll talk about it or something. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a little bit of a panic attack when I thought about someone, you know, deleting behind my back. I think I would cry a little bit. No, no, no. See, there is that trust. You have to have that of trust. Course. And we definitely, of course. We definitely have that. I mean, you, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, by with writing with someone and there's that trust, like, okay, we're each carrying our load in the work. So that as well, um, has helped, has always helped us with writing so well together. That's wonderful. Well, what projects are you working on next together solo? Uh, Kelsey, do you want to talk about some of those? Um, well, we're working on um, a book chapter about the research methods on food discourse, uh, more on the consumer aspect. Um, that's our next book. And then also, um, we're, in the future, we're starting to write about South African cookbooks that Kelsey's been um, starting to research more about South Africa. And so we, we got a grant to hopefully be able to travel there uh, and go to the archives and start looking at taking more of a historical linguistics approach. That's amazing. Well, I hope I get to talk to you about those projects when they come out. All right. Well, thank you. Cool. Well, we've been talking today to Carrie and Kelsey Matwick about their new book, Food Discourse of Celebrity Chefs of Food Network, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2019. Kelsey and Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a delight talking to you. All right. Thank you, Carrie. And thank you all for listening.